Uh, we'll get started now. Um, my name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are not familiar with who we, what we are, we're not a think tank, which everyone thinks we are. We do think here, uh, hopefully. Uh, but we're primarily a graduate school of national security and foreign policy. And uh, every now and then we try to bring in interesting speakers. And Tom Wilson is, if anything, an interesting speaker. Uh, he has a very, very background. Um, uh, after uh, university, he decided, uh, I forgot, it was right after your undergrad, or did you do a uh, law degree first? Law degree first. Law degree first, and then you decided to jump out of airplanes? I did, dumb. yes. Okay, like I said, a unique individual, uh, and has led a very interesting life, and he has got a lot to tell us about um, his experience in the late 80s and early 90s as a senior counsel defending Iran-Contra defendants uh, in Lawrence, uh, uh, I think Walsh. Was Walsh, Lawrence Welch. Walsh. Walsh. Um, uh, uh, independent uh, inquiry that lasted up until 1993 um, and uh, has practiced law up until just a couple of years ago and uh, is going to relate some of the uh, conflict that he saw in the 80s and early 90s uh, and running the Iran-Contra between the executive branch and the legislative branch with what's happening today. Um, I'm assuming a little bit of what he'll talk about, and I'll just give you a brief uh, summary from my own perspective. My, my PhD dissertation was on the role that Congress played in the opening of uh, our relations with China under Nixon, Ford, and Carter. And one of the things that I found was that a lot of the conflict between the Nixon and Ford administration in particular and Congress weren't necessarily constitutional conflicts between the legislative branch and the executive branch, but were more based upon uh, very different worldviews. So for instance, in the House of Representatives in the late 60s, early 70s, you had uh, a house that was run by traditional Harry Truman Democrats. All, almost all the chairmen were, were of that mindset. And they saw the world and America's role in the world the same way, most the same way that Richard Nixon did, that, uh, that Gerald Ford did. Um, but in the Senate, you had the rise of people like uh, William Fulbright, uh, who wrote in 1964, Old Myths and New Realities that turned on its head what had been the conceived, uh, what the degree of view of America's role in the world and perspective on the Cold War at that point, a very different scene. So a lot of it was actually ideological and worldview-based concept, not just between branches. Uh, so Tom will address some of that. Um, he is a very entertaining speaker. He can, uh, he can weave quite a yarn, so I'm sure he will have a lot of stories to entertain you in addition to a dry constitutional talk. So without further ado, please welcome Tom Wilson. Thank you very much, Paul. It really is, uh, I'm very glad to be here. I don't do this for a living. I'm a retired lawyer and happy to be so. But in a dinner that we had some time ago, we were talking about the issues that are prevailing in the foreign policy area. And I saw some connections between the trouble that Trump has begun to have, President Trump has begun to have, with um, kind of the dynamics that were operative, operative in connection with the Iran-Contra matter. Um, let me just start by saying, I'm not going to say anything that's classified, uh, and what I do say about Iran-Contra will be from public sources and from witness interviews. And um, the witness interviews are sometimes quite entertaining in terms of what they reveal, and I will uh, try and share some of that. But to begin with, to frame the discussion, what I'd like to do is just introduce it by saying the American Constitution is really a social and political compact. It presumes for its proper function 
on a minimum level of goodwill and cooperation among competing political adversaries. The evidence is mounting that such minimum requirements for the functioning of good government have, been, have become profoundly frayed, making good government increasingly difficult to achieve. The story of Iran-Contra is, in many ways, a precursor to what we are seeing here on the public stage in connection with the Trump executive orders, suspending for a time immigration into the United States from countries do that do not have vetting procedures that the administration believes are f sufficient to protect American citizens. Uh, regarding Iran-Contra, uh, I will limit my discussion really to the Contra prong. I was not involved in the Iran uh, component of Iran-Contra, except very, very tangentially, and for that reason I'm going to leave that to someone else, to others. I encountered Iran-Contra through my representation of Joe Fernandez. Joe Fernandez was, he served as the CIA station chief in San Jose, Costa Rica from mid-1984 until April of 1987. Fernandez was indicted twice, but never tried. That's called a win for the non-lawyers in the room. Uh, after two indictments and more than a three-year struggle with independent counsel Lawrence Walsh, the case was dismissed under the Classified Information Procedures Act. In brief, the Contra story involves a struggle between Marxist Nicaraguan Sandinistas in control of Nicaragua and the Contras who comprised anti-communist so-called Somosistas and more moderate, uh, more moderate social democrats. The Contras waged a guerrilla war against the Sandinistas inside Nicaragua from sanctuaries in southern Honduras and northern Costa Rica. By 1981, when President Reagan assumed office, the Sandinistas were firmly in control of Nicaragua. They were being armed by a host of Soviet bloc countries through Havana, Cuba. Nicaragua was also being used as a conduit for the shipment of arms to communist rebels in El Salvador. At the same time, Guatemala, which borders uh, Honduras to the north, was experiencing its own communist insurgency, thereby threatening to surround Honduras on three sides. Such was the situation that President Reagan inherited from President Jimmy Carter. The Reagan administration was alarmed by the communist insurgency in Central America. The Democrat-controlled Congress saw things differently. Reagan saw the Contras as Nicaraguan freedom fighters, as he liked to call them, who might obviate the need for the United States to send American troops to the region to prevent a communist takeover of the Central American Peninsula. Congressional Democrats were more sympathetic to the Sandinistas regime, ostensibly because Nicaragua had so recently shaken off the brutal regime of strongman uh, Anatasio Tacho Somoza, and Somoza was a, he was a very heavy-handed guy, to be sure. The scene that was set 
for a major foreign policy confrontation between the Reagan administration comprising philosophical conservatives and progressive Democrats populating Capitol Hill and firmly in control of Capitol Hill. The central commonality between congressional resistance of Reagan to Reagan's support for the Contras and the judicial stays that have been put in place with regard to Trump's immigration orders is profoundly philosophical, in, uh, philosophical dispute between secular progressivism on the one hand and classical liberalism on the other. Secular progressive, progressivism, that is to say leftism, honors only expediency as a means to power. In contrast, classical liberalism is animated by an adherence to a set of tested principles and to the rule of law. The forum in which the struggle plays out may change from time to time, but the essence of the struggle remains the same. The way Congress sought to control the executive's activities with respect to support for the Contras came in the form of certain appropriations measures known as the Bolin Amendments, named after the Massachusetts liberal Democrat who had his name on the restrictions. Reagan's support for the Contras was implemented through the CIA. The CIA's authorities to act can most easily be understood as residing in three separate but connected silos, intelligence, covert action, military support. Congress sought to restrain Reagan's military support for the Contras, leaving the CIA's intelligence and covert action responsibilities unaffected. The reason for that was those authorities would have required congressional amendment of various statutes, and that is something that the Democrats didn't want to be seen too openly as wanting to bring about. The Bolin amendments embodied appropriations restrictions which changed from year to year, but were basically directed at imposing limitations on expenditures for CIA military support to the Contras. In order to affect his policy, Reagan ended up standing up something that was called the private benefactors. And it came about at a National Security Council meeting on June 28, 1984. And it's important to understood that by that, understand that by that time, the Soviets were pouring massive amounts of military aid into Nicaragua to include tanks and Hein helicopters of the type that were used so devastatingly uh, against the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, pretty much at the same time that the Iran-Contra situation was going on. Nicaragua's had grown its army to 60,000. And that army was supplemented by 60,000 militias who were also armed. Such manpower was the largest standing army in Central America. And in fact, it comprised more troops than all the armies of Central America's other countries combined. Such was a military establishment that to Reagan was clearly not designed exclusively for defense. To the Reagan administration, such military buildup portended real Cold War trouble 
to America's South. On June 28, 1984, Reagan was immensely frustrated and he had had enough. He called a National Security Council meeting that was attended by all the luminaries, Secretary of Defense, State, Treasury, Edwin Meese, the top lawyer was there, of course, McFarlane, who was the, Bud McFarlane, who was the National Security Advisor, his deputy, Admiral Poindexter, they were all there. And uh, what happened during that meeting was the president is furious, and the minutes reflect this. He was enraged that the Congress was willing to abandon the Contras to the tender mercies of the Sandinistas. And he just wasn't going to do it. And he said, gentlemen, there must be a way that we can help these people without using appropriated funds. At that point, McFarland spoke up and he said, well, Mr. President, there's some uh, private Americans who've indicated an interest in supporting the Contras and we may be able to solicit some funds from, from foreign actors who are friendly to the United States. At that point, Jim Baker, the Secretary of the Treasury, spoke up and said, Mr. President, if you were to do that and the Democrats were to find out about it on the Hill, you would have to be concerned about the possibility of impeachment. In an act of enormous political and moral courage, having heard that, Ronald Reagan, at the, end of the at the end of the meeting, took two decisions. One, we're going to raise the money through private benefactors and through foreign actors to support the Contras. And two, we're not going to tell Congress what we're doing. In the meantime, we will strive to try and persuade Congress to turn the funding spigot back on. At the end of that meeting, the minutes reflect that Reagan said, you all need to hear this. If the decisions taken here today leak out, we're all going to be hanging outside the White House by our thumbs until we find out who leaked it. Is that clear? Silently, they all processed out of the Situation Room and Bud McFarlane went to his, uh, went to his office. He picked up the phone and he said, Ollie, you got a minute? <laughs> and so Ollie had a minute. And he went to see his boss, McFarlane, and uh, they were both Naval Academy graduates. And after hearing what his mission was going to be to bring the Contra supervision and the Central American War inside the National Security Council because the CIA could no longer use appropriated funds militarily to support the Contras. So he asked McFarlane, he said, they were good friends. Now, Bud, I didn't take that course at the Naval Academy. How do we do this? And McFarlane went palms up and says, honestly, Ollie, I don't know. But I bet Casey knows. Go talk to him. So he went to Bill Casey, who was the director of Central Intelligence, and in his gruff, dismissive way, got enough information out of him to bring about the introduction of Oliver North and Richard Secord and the era of the uh, private benefactors was born. Uh, between eight, 1984 and 85, after this June meeting, 
North and Secord and the private benefactors were enormously successful in raising money to buy arms and bought the arms. In fact, they bought a ship <laughs> called the MV Eria and they filled it full of arms and they transported it across the Atlantic Ocean for the Contras and to be distributed to them in, in Honduras. Everything was going fine until the ship was unloaded. The cargo comprised 18 18-wheelers of munitions and, and weapons. That's a lot of weapons. And in order for that to be transported to the port, to Tegucigalpa, to the warehouses, it had to be supervised by the Honduran military. Well, the Honduran military are looking at one another and say, see all these guns and bullets? They could be ours. So they hijack the trucks and drive them to Honduran military warehouses, leaving the Contras completely exposed. The only way to get this fixed was chief executive to chief executive. So at the end of the day, what happened was Ronald Reagan called up President Suazo of Honduras and negotiated a deal. And the deal was essentially, listen, the Congress has appropriated $80 million of military aid for Honduras. It's gonna take a while for that aid to hit your warehouses outside of Tegucigalpa. I tell you what we'll do. You release the weapons that were bound for the Contras and we will draw down the American military warehouses in the Southwest and deliver the aid that's already been voted for you and authorized faster than you would otherwise receive it. That sounded like a good deal to Suazo and that's how the Contras ended up getting their arms to defend themselves against the Sandinistas. The great fear was the Sandinistas are gonna come across the border and just slaughter the Contras in their sanctuaries, primarily in uh, southern Honduras. Um, in the midst of all this, CIA was really in the middle. They were tasked with intelligence and covert action responsibilities, but barred from resupply. As a result, everything had to be compartmented. They Operators, people in the clandestine service who were involved in this, were, they knew the sensitivities of it all. The president had taken a decision, they worked for the president. On the other hand, they had oversight responsibilities to the Congress, and that was the difficult shoals that they were seeking to navigate. So they tried to do everything by face-to-face -face meetings. The reason for that, you send a cable uh, to headquarters or from headquarters to the field. It never goes away. There it is. The only way to communicate with people to have it completely compartmentalized is to have face-to-face um, -face meetings. There was such a face-to-face -face meetings between the people in the Central American Task Force that was overseen by Alan Fires and others down in uh, down Florida and the chiefs of station that were brought up from uh, from Central America to meet with the bosses they gathered in a in a uh, motel in Miami 
And Joe was tasked, Joe Fernandez was tasked to kind of be the liaison guy to bring this off to get the, make the arrangements. Well, they ended up in this suite in this motel. And they had their briefcases open and they're going over maps and doing this and that and talking, talking secrets talk, you know, as they do. And uh, the uh, chief of the task force said, hey, Joe, do me a favor. Will you go over to the phone and call room service and get us some drinks? So Joe dutifully goes over there and he picks up the phone and he says, uh, could you send some refreshments up to our suite? And there's a slight pause on the other end of the phone. And then the guy says, uh, you people are CIA, right? Well, that Joe went, he wants to know if we're CIA. Whereupon they're grabbing all their maps and shoving them back in their briefcases and ready to make themselves scarce. Joe, maintaining his cool, says, CIA? What do you mean CIA? And the answer comes back, you know, cash in advance. <laughs> no credit cards had been used, no checks had been written. This was cash in advance. And so they went back to their maps and their meeting. But those sorts of things happened fairly frequently. Bolin in 1985 was really played out in 1986 because the fiscal year begins in October of 85 and goes to October of 86. But in that year, because Reagan was pounding on the Congress, they appropriated $27 million of humanitarian aid, um, which included no lethal, but it was boots and blankets and medicines and that kind of thing. And they so distrusted the CIA that they named Ambassador Dumling at the State Department to be head of an office to be called the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office. It is a very fancy name for what comprised Ambassador Dumbling, his administrative assistant, uh, his deputy and an administrative assistant. So having accepted this assignment, he calls in his deputy and says, do you know how to deliver this humanitarian aid inside of Nicaragua? That guy says, I have no idea. Whew, well, what are we gonna do? Well, you know, these guys across the river, they know how to do that. Why don't we go meet with them and kind of seek their guidance? So they go across the river. Now, CIA's been taken out of the contrary supply game, right? They're pretty, they're sneering at this point. Conference room like this, You've got the SAD, Special Activities Division here, and then you've got Ambassador Dumbling and his deputy there. And they're uh, there on a mission of goodwill. Explain the problem to these agency hard guys who are all sitting there like this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They were not sympathetic at all. And he said, well, how do we do this? The answer came back, you have three choices. You can deliver it by land, sea, and air. Oh great, we got three choices, we have options. Well, not really, because by sea it doesn't work. By land, the jungles are impenetrable, so that ain't gonna work. So that leaves you air. Oh great, we can do it by air. 
Well, it's not as easy as that. The Contras don't have a secure communications capability. So when they organize an airdrop, the Sandinistas will hear it, they will show up, they will ambush the pickup party and then pick up what's dropped and the Contras will get none of it. Oh dear, what do we do? So all of them go up to the hill and they meet with folks from Hamilton's at Hips Hamilton's committee, he was the chairman of HIPSI, and with Durenberger, who was the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And they understand the problem, and what they did was they appropriated another $3 million in order to provide the Contras with a secure communications capability and a means of delivering the communicators inside of Nicaragua by parachute. So they had to give them parachute training. And uh, what really got to be bizarre about this, almost Orwellian, was it was very dangerous to fly planes into Nicaraguan airspace. So you wanted to limit the number of flights. But you had to, Ollie North is producing all this lethal stuff and it has to get delivered. And the question arose, well, can we put lethal on a humanitarian flight? Well, here's what they worked out. They decided, it's everything in a definition, you all, that a flight that had 90% lethal and 10% non-lethal is a humanitarian flight. And NAHAO, N-A-H-A, Nicaraguan Humanitarian's Office, could pay for it. So that's how they solved that problem. So all the supplies were being flown out of Ilopango, which is an air base uh, outside of San Salvador in, in El Salvador. And um, <clears throat> the southern front, there was a political division within the Contras. The Somosistas were up in the north above the um, above the Nicaraguan border, southern Honduras, but the social democrat types were down in the south. And it was really hard to get stuff dropped into the south. One, the terrain was extremely rugged. And secondly, it was a long flight. So, and politically, in terms of arming their troops, the Somosistas, the FDN folks, were pretty greedy and they didn't really care about the folks in the southern front. They just wanted to get as much of the stuff for themselves as they could. So in any event, in March of 1985 was the first successful airdrop to the southern front. And my guy, his bosses at the end of all this would say, gosh, Joe Fernandez was doing that? He was talking to private benefactors? Wow, we didn't know that. Well, had we gone to trial, there would have been an awkward fact. Here's the awkward fact. Joe sent a cable to headquarters asking for navigational weather and hostile risk information for an L-100, that's a civilian C-130 aircraft, four-engine turboprop for a drop at a certain coordinates in southern, in southern Nicaragua. And he got the answer back and he provided the information to the private benefactors who were gonna fly the flight. 
And what they did was, on March 27th, they took off from Ilopango and flew across the northern border of Nicaragua, down the east coast of Nicaragua to Bluefields, under the radar at Monkey Point, and up into the mountains in southern Nicaragua to make the drop. But they couldn't find the indicators for the drop zone. So these guys who were, it was tremendously hazardous to do this. But what they did was, we're not gonna drop this stuff to the Sandinistas, so they turned around and retraced their route and went back to Ilopango. The next night, they flew again, and this time, they made a successful drop, and it was reported to Joe Fernandez, everything that was picked up by the, by the Southern Contras from that airdrop. He reported that to headquarters. There was jubilation in the Central American Task Force. We'd finally figured out a way to supply the Southern Front. In the meantime, this was in 85 through 86, Reagan was working relentlessly on the Congress to try and get them to turn the funding spigot back on. And there was something that arose during Easter week of 1986. It was decided that it would really be helpful to the effort to persuade Congress if uh, Ronald Reagan could have a picture in the Oval Office with the UNO Directorate, which was the board of directors of the Contras. And one of those gentlemen was a guy named Alfonso Rebello, a really courtly gentleman and a very, very nice guy whom I interviewed. And he told an amazing story about North. He was a um, pretty wealthy guy, and he had a finca outside of San Jose. And because Easter week, nothing happens in Central America, he went out to stay at his finca, and he was riding around his property with his overseer, and he sees a Jeep coming up from the Pueblo. And he's thinking, this isn't good. And the guy in the Jeep says, uh, Don Alfonso, you have a phone call down at the tienda in the village. And he knew uh, there's only one person who would do this, and it's Oliver North. So he gets in the Jeep, and he goes down there. Sure enough, that's who it was. And North says to him, Alfonso, you need to get to the San Jose airport, and I'll send a plane to pick you up. He says, Ali. It's Easter week. Nothing happens down here on Easter week. This is crazy. Alfonso, just do it. Say, well, okay. So he goes down to the San Jose airport. He gets there late at night. And he's met by Joe Fernandez, the military attache from the embassy and the deputy chief of mission. And they're sitting down there, and all it's real quiet. There are guards over here and over here sort of nodding off. There's nobody else around. And lo and behold, lights go on. Here comes a Learjet. Plane swings around in front of the terminal. Hatch comes down. A guy gets out in a flight suit. And he says, is there a guy named Alfonso Robello here? Robello says, yeah, I'm Alfonso Robello. He says, well, sir. Get on the airplane, we gotta go. In the meantime, we need to take up a collection to fuel the bird. 
you couldn't use appropriated funds even to fuel the burn. So you have these guys, these luminaries from the US government going through their wallets and <laughs> giving, you know, 50 bucks here. And a guy said, well, I've got a credit card. And anyway, they fuel the bird and Robello leaves. He falls asleep on the airplane. He's exhausted. And he, in his sleep, he touches the um, metal part of his seatbelt. And it singes his hand. He wakes up and he looks in the cockpit and these guys are clearly agitated, the guys flying the airplane. And they tell him that one of the valves in one of the engines has reversed and is blowing hot air into the cabin. And they have to declare an in-air emergency off of Mexico and land at an island that I think was Lanzagote, which is 80 miles, 80 kilometers north of, uh, of the Yucatan Peninsula. So they land there in the middle of the night, Easter week. Immediately, the plane is surrounded by federales. They think it's a drug plane. Well, Alfonso Ribello persuades them that this is all very innocent. They search the airplane. They find nothing. And they take him to the nearby hotel, whereupon Alfonso seizes the opportunity to call Ali North with his AT&T credit card. And North says, where are you exactly? So he tells him where he is exactly. And he says, well, listen, Alfonso, you got to persuade these federalists to take you back to the airport. And I'll send another airplane for you. Oh, Ali, what are you, nuts? This is Easter week. Not, you're not going to be able to do that. Just do it. OK. So he goes back to the airport. In the meantime, Ali North had a very good relationship with General Gorman, who was the CEO of Southern Command. And he calls him on a secure phone and tells him what the problem is. And he says, do you have an air asset over the Gulf of Mexico? Well, let me give the phone to the air boss. Turns out there was a C-130 on its way to Miami. It was out over the Gulf of Mexico. I said, fine. Give me the maiden names of the pilot, the maiden names of the wives of the pilots on that aircraft and their social security numbers. Okay. So they do that. So Ali uses the communication center at uh, Andrews to call that airplane. He announces who he is and he tells the pilots, I want you to go to this island. I want you to declare uh, an in-air emergency and land and pick up a guy named Alfonso Ribello. We can't do that. That's crazy. Oh, sure you can. Just go do it. Well, he persuades them to do it. Well, here are these federales nodding off at the airport in this place, and all of a sudden, poof, the lights go on. It's a C-130. Here it comes, circles around, hatch comes down. A guy in a flight suit gets out and he says, is there a guy named Alfonso Robello around here? <laughs> yeah, I'm Alfonso Robello. We'll get on the airplane. So they leave and he gets to Miami. And when he gets to Miami, there's a Gulf Stream waiting for him. And the guy at the foot of the stairway says, is there a guy named Alfonso Robello here? I'm supposed to pick him up. Yeah. So he gets on the Gulf Stream, goes to Washington. 
he gets out of the airplane, he's exhausted, and he walks down the gangplank, gets in a car, and in the back seat is a change of clothes, a shirt, a dob kit, everything that he needs to spruce himself up, and uh, on the way to the White House, that's what he does. And after telling this story, Alfonso Rabello reaches in his briefcase and he pulls out the photograph that was taken. And in, out of focus in the deep corner in civilian clothes was Ali North. And he says, this guy, Ali North, he's a very, very tenacious man, this Ali North guy. And they had a very good friendship and obviously things went well after that. The picture was taken and it translated, at least in part, in August of 1986 to Congress turning the funding spigot back on to the tune of $300 million. In the meantime, in 1985, the ambassador to Costa Rica, the new ambassador was Lou Tams. He had been the ambassador to Colombia and he was kind of a folk hero because after he was scheduled for assassination by the FARC, he refused to leave his post and he stayed there for about six additional months. So when he came to Costa Rica, he was a known entity and a highly respected guy. At the time, the president of Costa Rica was a guy named Alberto Monge. And Monge was being bedeviled by southern Contras who were coming out of southern Nicaragua into northern Costa Rica. And they were hungry and they were felt abandoned. So they started rustling cattle. Well, the farmers in northern Costa Rica were real unhappy about that. And he told Tams about that and said, look, you got to fix it. How can we help? So they decided that they needed a resupply capability through neutral Costa Rica. And they were very sensitive about their neutrality. My client was put in touch with the Minister of Interior and to build an airstrip with private money in northern Costa Rica at a place called Punta Santa Elena. And it's right there. That's the point. And it was extremely remote. On the map, it looks like it's very close to a highway that goes into Nicaragua. But the, the uh, terrain is so, is so treacherous that you have to cross something like 15 or 18 rivers to get out to Punta Elena. So it was very secure. In any event, um, they decided Monge leaves office in February of 1986, and he's replaced by Oscar Arias. Oscar Arias was very nervous about dealing with the Americans. So he communicates to the US government, you can't use the airstrip. OK, we won't use the airstrip. Yes, sir, your country, your sovereign nation, we will follow your directions. Short time later, in April of 1986, the, um, Joe Fernandez gets a phone call from his contact guy in the private benefactors, a guy named uh, Rafael Chichi Quintero. What a great interview I had with this guy. I said, Chichi, how did you get into this business? He says, oh, Tom, you know, I was with the Brigada. Really? 
Dobrigara at the Bay of Pigs? Really? And I was very interested in that. My dad was a foreign service officer. And I spent my last two years of high school in Havana. We left on June 11th, 1960, and they invaded the Bay of Pigs the following April. So I had an intense interest in this. I said, gee whiz, you did that? He said, yes, Tom. It was very exciting. And then he says, you know, the sons of bitches, they captured me. Really? They captured you? But I escaped. <laughs> but I went back eight times. You went back eight times? How did you do that? Oh, sometimes by submarine, sometimes by parachute. <laughs> but he was a real warrior, and he was a ferocious anti-communist. And that was Joe Fernandez's contact among the private benefactors. Anyway, with respect to the airstrip, Joe receives a phone call one day. And it went something like this. Hey, Joe, this is Chi-Chi. Hey, Chi-Chi, what's up? We have a problem at Santa Elena. Uh-huh. And it comprises good news and bad news, Joe. What do you want first? Oh, please, Chi-Chi, stop playing with it. Give me the good news. Well, you know, Punta Elena? We have an airplane at Punta Elena, and it's stuck in the mud. Joe just about has a heart attack. I mean, we've told the chief executive of the frickin' country that we won't use that airstrip, and here we have an airplane there. Joe says to him, gee, 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 what's the bad news? The airplane's talking to more, Joe? It's filled with guns and bullets. <laughs> Jeez. So, well, you just get it out of there. And they ended up doing an amazing job. It was a C-123 provider, for those of you who've been in the military, that was used as a special operations airplane in Vietnam a lot. I was very familiar with it. And they also had a C-7. So what they did was they flew the C-7 caribou down to Punta Elena from, uh, from Ilopango. And it was filled with jacks and shovels and all that. They unloaded the C-123, divided the load, jacked the plane up, ran the engines up, got it out of the mud, and the two airplanes left and went back to Ilopongo. Crisis averted. In April 1986, the Central American Task Force was overseen by LA Division, Latin America Division. And they got a new division chief. He had recently been the COS in Mexico City. And he didn't really know much about this Contra War thing, but he knew he had to check it out. And the reason he didn't know, because it was so closely held. So he traveled down to Costa Rica, and he meets with Joe Fernandez. And Joe Fernandez tells him, listen, I'm communicating for these private benefactors for the airdrops in southern Nicaragua. Really? How are you doing that? And Joe reaches behind his desk and picks up something called a KL-43, which was a device that permitted you to communicate securely through, through a black line telephone, a landline. And he would get drop zone information from the radio net, which was mobile in San Jose. He would use the KL-43 to communicate it to Ilopongo. 
and that's where the, how they knew where to drop stuff in the South. And his superiors knew all about that. But the uh, LA division chief was very uncomfortable with it because it permitted a communications outside of the agency net. And that is for very good, sufficient reason, verboten. In May, a few weeks later, there is a uh, chief of stations meeting in, um, in Salvador. And uh, so Joe goes up there and it became to be known in, on, in the Iran-Contra world as uh, the Joe's got a problem meeting. And Joe's problem was he was speaking directly to private benefactors. That was a problem because the agency was telling Congress that look, we can report to you what's being dropped to these folks, but we can't tell you who's doing it because they're American citizens and we can't look into that. We're statutorily barred. Oh, okay. So, now they have a station chief who's in direct contact with a private benefactor. And that was a big problem. So the uh, chief of Latin America division tells the chief, the chief of station from Salvador, go to General Bustillo, who ran the airdrome at Ilopongo, and get him to accept the southern front Nicaragua and to be put in the safe house at Ilopongo. Joe, you go down, find yourself a Nicaraguan com uh, communicator, southern front guy, polygraph him, train him, and send him up to Ilopongo. Roger that. And that was in May. But because the whole thing was so closely held, the compliance officer at the Central American Task Force was not witting of what was going on. And when he sees a cable congratulating Joe Fernandez on preparing the Southern Front communicator to be sent to Ilopongo, he goes, all stop, we're not talking to the private benefactors, so, this, so they nix the fix that's gonna get Joe out of the loop. So Joe remains in the loop. In um, September of 1986, Ali North calls Fernandez and says, listen, we've got the money from Congress. We've got a lot of weapons in warehouses at Opongo. We're gonna load up aircraft and drop it all in the south. Can you communicate for us? And Joe, having had his fix, um, taken away from him, said, look, I got a duty here to provide information and support to the Contra in order to assure the secure delivery of materiel. That was his job. So he said, yeah, I'll communicate for you. And six drops were made and all of them were reported to headquarters. Um, in October of 1986, basically the mission's over because now they've got the money to go back into the war game out of the CIA. And uh, Director Casey goes down to San Jose and he meets with the San Jose station to be briefed by them on their various operations. And then he says, uh, Joe, I'd like to see you in your office. And they go in there, Casey shuts the door. He said, Joe, mm, what a great operation. Well done. Casey had been an operator himself with the OSS during World War II and he loved operations. He loved how they were done and he wanted the details. 
Joe had maps behind a sliding board in his office. Show me where the drop zones were, Joe. So he rolls back the thing and he points out the drop zones and, and Casey was just standing there smiling, saying, boy, what a great operation. Unfortunately, on October the 5th, 1986, C-123 flown by a guy named Buzz Sawyer was shot down by the Sandinistas. The only guy to survive was a fellow named Eugene Hassenfuss, and he knew nothing. He was just a guy who was called the kicker. He would shove the uh, cargo out the back of the airplane, and he was the only one who lived to tell the story. Well, it was there that the whole secret operation that had gone on for two years began to unravel. In November of 1986, it was reported by a Syrian newspaper about the diversion. Ali had sold, Ali and Secord and Hakim, those guys had sold certain weapons in an, to the Iranians to try and get them to importune the bad guys in, in the Middle East to release some seven hostages which they had taken. And the Syrian newspaper disclosed that a portion of the profits associated with those sales had been diverted to buy weapons for the Contras. Well, that really just blew the lid off Iran-Contra and really created a hubbub here in Washington. Uh, particularly the liberal Democrats were ballistic because they had been effectively circumvented and it had all been hidden from them effectively. Now the Trump immigration executive orders, I reread the most recent one today and boy, you know the only thing that's at issue in the Trump executive orders which clearly involved national security and foreign and domestic policy with respect to six countries. <clears throat> the only issue is does the president have the constitutional and statutory authority to issue these orders? And the answer is unambiguously and unequivocally, of course he does. He was heavily criticized by congressional Democrats on each occasion, and there were two orders that were issued. The executive orders have been challenged by radical leftist organizations like the ACLU and others. And where there's a consensus, no, active, no active conspiracy is required. And so these guys talk to one another all the time, they're all on the same page. The sole issue presented, as I said before, is constitutional and statutory authority. And the president clearly has the authority to do what he did. And what the judges have done is they have stepped into the realm in which they have no place being in the foreign policy and national security area by putting a stay on these orders, which could imperil the national security interests of the United States and our citizens. As I said when I started, the Constitution is a social and political compact. The fabric of that compact is being rent asunder by militant leftism. Modern leftism has abandoned the common ground that must exist between political adversaries in order for a constitutional system to work. President Trump has come to office at a time when we are, in essence, in the throes of the second American Civil War 
in my opinion. This is only my opinion, but it's a firm one. It is really a struggle between the forces of militant subjectivism on the one hand and classical liberalism on the other. The struggle is engaging not just our political and our legal institutions, but all the institutions that we look to to secure the well-ordered well society bequeathed to us by our founding fathers. In the absence of our ability to reestablish a common ground on which to meet, compromise between competing political and social forces no longer appears to be feasible. America's survival depends on the American people being led to understand that leftism is, truly does represent the Viet Cong inside the wire of the American Republic. Leftism must be called out, identified plainly for what it is, and defeated decisively, or America as we know it and love it, and have even taken steps to defend it, will eventually no longer exist. Thank you. Yes, sir. I think that the Democrats, and he was sort of speaking for the Democrats, were absolutely furious that Reagan had successfully gotten around the Bolin restrictions. And by the way, he'd done it, he'd done it legally. And while he was sailing very close to the wind, no question about that. But the Bolin amendments expressly did not apply to the National Security Council. It applied only to government agencies involved in intelligence. The first Bolin Amendment, which had, to be, which had to be run through legislative council, had the National Security Council specifically identified. And the folks at legislative council in the House said, you know, you put that there, it makes the whole bill unconstitutional because you're seeking to use appropriated funds to control the activities of the chief executive. This is a separation of powers issue. So you've got to take the NSC out. They did that, and of course, that opened up a loophole which President Reagan and McFarland and all the others, Ollie North, exploited. And they had several legal opinions uh, to support the fact that Boland did not cover the National Security Council so they could go out and use private money and foreign resources to support the Contras even though it clearly violated what some would say was the spirit of Boland. But Reagan was well past carrying about the spirit of anything. He wanted these people supported and defended. And he was willing to take very significant political risk to do it. Yes? Well, this is a personal opinion, it's just mine. Republicans are notoriously unreliable. 
basically, you know, they hear a shot fired and they're the first ones to get to the bunker. Uh, so they're not fighters. And, you know, whenever you do something and are looking to uh, Republicans on the Hill to defend you from uh, the Democrats on the Hill, they're so ineffective and so tepid that they're completely ineffective. And uh, Reagan was a very popular president. People very liked him personally. But on issues like this, at the end of the day, what people do is they consult their own interests. And their own interests were not necessarily Reagan's interest, particularly in connection with a, a venture which had been so aggressive as the scheme that he worked out in order to keep the uh, Contras militarily in the game while he worked to turn the funding spigot back on. Yeah? They, sure, they surely would have tried to do that. The problem is it's hard to identify a crime that was committed. The independent counsel uh, trotted out the Anti-Deficiency Act. And Boland had no criminal aspects to it at all. But the Anti-Deficiency Act, which is a more general statute, basically says you cannot expend appropriated funds for a purpose which was not covered by the appropriation. And um, there were no appropriated funds used. And the people in the agency were very careful about what they did. You know, the, the left would have you believe that these clandestine service officers are a bunch of cowboys who don't believe in rules. That's complete nonsense. They're family men who are patriots, who like to turn square corners because it's in the square corners where they find safety. And they're not gonna get off the reservation. And every so often they'll get asked by somebody in headquarters to do something. And they say politely, well, sir, I really wanna help you out here. Uh, would you put that in writing? <laughs> and they never do, if it's something that's, because those writings never go away. And if something bad happens, then, you know, the paper trail is gonna indicate who you need to go look for, so. That's my experience with it as a lawyer. Casey was a warrior though. Really, a, he's an amazing guy. He was sui generis in terms of his experience. He was a, war, a very good lawyer, number one. But he had been on the operation side of OSS and he knew how things worked and he also knew how the world works and he was pretty clear-eyed about what it was that President Reagan was trying to do and who the people were who were involved on the other side. Let yeah. me ask you so if the Congressional Democrats that ran the Iran-Contra investigation were running the Benghazi investigation, what do you think would have happened? Well, there would have been people hanging by their thumbs outside of something. Um, now, you know, congressional investigations are extremely inefficient. And the reason they are is because they don't have subpoena power, number one, you know, to get documents and all of that. It's pretty much, they get them by grace. And if you have an adverse, even if they issue a subpoena, if you have an adverse administration like Gowdy had with respect to uh, the uh, 
the last president that we had administration, they were not going, even if a, if a subpoena were ignored, they weren't going to permit anybody to be held in contempt and then prosecuted because that would have to be done by the Justice Department. And obviously, Barack Obama's Justice Department wasn't interested in doing anything like that. So, and everybody knows this. So they sort of slow roll the whole thing and say, eh, it'll go away over time. And I have a lot of sympathy for Gotti. I think he did his best, but he was on top of a, he was on top of a system that really is not designed to, not designed to de deliver the results that I think a lot of people hope for. That's why grand juries are so important. Grand juries have the authority to issue subpoenas, and those subpoenas are enforceable. And people can go to jail, and indeed have gone to jail, if they get a subpoena and refuse to comply with it. In a time before Hillary Clinton, if you get a subpoena and you thereafter destroy documents, it's called obstruction of justice. It wasn't with respect to Mrs. Clinton, but that's the usual way it works. And that gets people to be pretty careful uh, to make sure that they comply with the subpoena and produce the information that the investigation really needs. Yes. And regarding that, right now, it seems like there's a, a general attitude in the U.S. that we're bulletproof, it's okay, no matter what happens in politics, we'll be here forever, and which is very dangerous, I think. And as people get lulled into, you know, don't worry about this, don't worry about that, that's how you cook the frog slowly, you turn up the heat slowly. What do you think it would take Well, a couple of years ago, it was about 10 years ago, I happened to have lunch with David Keene, if you all know who David is. He was head of the conservative union. And I said, David, I've got a project for you. What's that, Tom? Well, why don't you raise the money to go out and buy all the artificially created testosterone and that uh, the pharmaceutical companies you know, have? and start injecting it into conservatives because they don't produce it naturally. <laughs> he almost fell off his chair laughing because he knew it was true. And what you need is bold, smart, unapologetic American patriots who call things what they are. Call leftism, it's come to the point where it's revolutionary. It's just not an alternative political set of beliefs. This is sedition. And they show it every day. Look at what's going on in connection with the 
the Gorsuch hearings, there is no principled basis that anybody could find to oppose Gorsuch as a qualified member of the United States Supreme Court. But they all oppose him anyway. Why? Because they're not listening. But what you have to do, what my job I would love to have, I'd like to be the messaging guy for the Republican Party. Call the Democrat Party the party of the urban riot. How's the urban riot? Tom, are you suggesting the Democrats riot? Absolutely. Have you ever seen a Republican riot? I mean, let's be serious. Just call them what they are. The Democrats brand. They're very good at branding. And liberals brand conservatives with lies. How about this idea? Why don't conservatives brand the liberals with the truth? But you've got to speak the truth in short sentences comprising small words and keep doing it. And they are going to go ballistic. Lean into them when they do and say it again. And keep saying it until all of a sudden they have to meet, meet the accusation and deny it if they can. And they never can. But that is something that I think the leadership in the conservative leadership in America has to commit itself to doing. It's very unpleasant because it doesn't produce friends. Let's be honest. And the mainstream media, as Trump has admirably shown, is populated to the point of 90% by doctrinaire leftists. And they are committed ideologues. And they've gotten it to the point where now they don't even have to have a respectable argument about anything. They just assert it, and if you disagree with them, well, you're a bigot or this or that. And they use that language because it works. It runs conservatives off the hill. Particularly, and I don't mean Capitol Hill, but the hill more generally. It just does. People don't like to be called bigots. And if you call somebody a bigot enough, and he doesn't get any support, he'll probably go on radio silence. And that's what's happened in, our, in the past. I have enjoyed this. I hope I haven't gotten anybody fired by saying what I'm saying. But I just want you all to know, if you haven't figured it out yet, there's nobody on my right flank. <laughs> nobody. So anyway, thanks very much.